The reason we showed you that video, we actually had an ulterior motive uh, because we are recruiting for VBS this year. And last year, it was really one of, uh, it was a highlight of the year. We had over 300 kids participate. And so that bunch of those are people, kids, uh, your children and our children. But a bunch of those were children from people who never darken the doorway of a church, who don't typically come here. And our vision for this year is to hopefully see that number go from 300 to 400 and use every square inch of this building uh, to serve the kids and talk to them about Jesus. And so we need your help to make that happen. Uh, We need about 100 volunteers, maybe a little bit more. And so in your bulletins, you should have this insert. Um, You can sign up. You can serve all week, all five days. You can serve for just a day or two. Uh, But we need a whole bunch of servants. And so... Pastor Trey and crew, they know the way to a servant's heart is through popcorn. So they're brewing, or brewing, they're uh, making popcorn. I don't know what you, they're popping it. They're popping popcorn. Uh, In the atrium, you can get more information there, but I would encourage you, even if you think that's probably not something I'm ever going to do, maybe it should be something you do because the people who served last year, they talked about how amazing it was to actually be a part and get to play a part in that. So I wanted to hold that before you this morning. Um, if you can't tell, I've been a little sick. I spent most of this past week laid up sick. And so I ended up watching a few movies with my kiddos. And one of the movies that they go back to over and over again is the movie Frozen. And my, my youngest, Everly, which I love the movie, I really do, but sometimes I want to let it go because it has been, <laughs> I've seen it so many times. But my youngest, Everly, she's two, and so it's still really new to her, and she loves it. And so we put it on, and she's in the room, and Knox, my four-year-old, who's the class clown of our family, he's in the room, and he's lying on the floor. And if you haven't seen Frozen, you've been living under a rock for three years. Uh, but the movie begins with the parents. Um, they have to go away on this journey by sea, and their ship capsizes, and they die. And that kind of sets up the rest of the movie. And so there's some intensity, like the first few minutes in. Now, because our kids have seen it, they're not surprised by this anymore. And so as we're watching it, my wife and I are sitting there talking, not really paying attention. And right before the parents go on this fateful journey, uh, Elsa asks, do you, do you have to go? And the parents respond something like, don't worry, we'll be fine. And right as they utter those words, knocks my four-year-old quips, no, they won't. Just really dryly, uh, nonchalantly, not even to any of us, just like, no. Uh, and you could say he's cold-blooded. I just say he's got a good beat on life. Like, he knows. I do remember the first time we watched it, though, and it brought up discussions with our kids about death and dying. And, uh, and those are hard questions as parents. There's a lot of hard questions. You know, also this past week, my oldest, Anna, um, she came to me and she asked if she could, she said, I have a question for you about God. And I said, okay. And she said, can you still go to heaven if you hate God? <laughs> and I said, wow, that's, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Uh, obviously something's happening here. And she said, well, I hate how sad I get. And I hate how sad other people get. And I hate so much pain. And I hate that people die. And if God created everything, That means he created all of this pain and all the evil and all the bad stuff in the world. And man, it wasn't a question or a conversation I was expecting to have, but 
you know, I had to sit down and I said, well, listen, God didn't create evil. Evil's not something that you can hold. It's not, it's actually not something that's created. Uh, it, it's more of a posture and God is not the author of evil, but he allows evil, but he's not the author. And so she, she actually, her, her expression lightened for a minute and she said, oh, and then the look of consternation came over. She said, but wait a second, God is all powerful, isn't he? I said, yeah. And she said, well, then why doesn't he stop all the evil? And I said, that's a good question. He does. It's just slow. She said, well, how does he stop the, the evil? And why is it so slow? And I said, well, that's what the whole Bible is all about. You know? And so we, we read some passages together. Uh, tough questions, you know? It's hard when you're a pastor. That means you collect a paycheck for teaching people the Bible and your kid comes to you with questions that you're like, that's a hard one to answer. Um, and honestly, I mean, I told her, like some of these questions you're asking, we're not gonna get answers in this life. They're just not there. And I share all this with you because the passage we're looking at today is about suffering. And in many ways, it's about senseless suffering or avoidable suffering. And if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we've been looking at the life of Paul and Paul has been suffering, but up to this point, it's been persecution. He's being persecuted for his faith. Well, in the text we're looking at today, he's suffering in a different realm and in a different way. See, Paul requested a trial before Caesar because he knew he would never get a fair trial in his home country. And so the Romans granted him his trial before Caesar and he has to make this 1,500 mile journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And the journey is on the Mediterranean. And if it's been a while since you've looked at the map of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean is huge. It's like an ocean in and of itself. And so Paul and this crew, he's being transported there as a prisoner uh, and they're being transported in the fall. And Paul at one point says, you know, we probably shouldn't go out because the Mediterranean is notorious for being an unsafe sea to travel in the fall. They actually consider it closed from November until April because the storms are so bad, the wind and the waves, ships would just altogether avoid it. Everyone would harbor up for winter. And so Paul tells the people who are transporting him, he tells the sailors, if we go out in this, we're putting not just the ship and the cargo at risk, we're putting our very lives at risk. And the sailors, they don't listen to him. And what follows is one of the most detailed narratives in all of scripture. It's one of the most, I mean, there's so many fine little details in here uh, about this fateful journey that Paul goes on. And so I want to read an excerpt from the passage. We can't read the whole thing. It's 60-something verses. But I want to read an excerpt, and we're going to start in Acts 27, verse 13, and we're going to read to verse 35. But we're picking it up right after Paul said, let's not go. And they said, no, we're going to go ahead with the journey. And I'd ask if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke tells us that when a gentle south wind began to blow, they, that's the sailors, thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. 
As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves and this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat, let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you haven't, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me. Father, we... We come before you this morning with an awful lot of pain in our midst. We come here with people, there are broken marriages, spouses who don't want to talk to one another. There are broken families and kids who are mad at their parents, parents who are mad at their kids. We come here with broken and failing bodies, diseases that we're still waiting to get diagnosed. We come here with mental illnesses like depression and anxiety that can be absolutely overwhelming. We come here as a people who know what it is to suffer. So God, I pray as we come to your word, we might find strength. We might find hope and we might find wisdom so that we can navigate the suffering in our lives and so that as we do, we can be witnesses, bear witness to the watching world of the power of your grace and your love that transcends suffering and transcends pain and darkness. So Lord, give us eyes to see the truths your word has for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
the question that I want to try to answer from this text is really a simple one. How do, you, how do we survive a shipwreck? How do we survive the chaos and the hardships and the pain and suffering of life. And I, I don't want to keep you in suspense. Paul and the rest of the crew, the other 275 people on board, they actually make it to safety. Um, but there's so much in this text, you know, that one of the things struck me as I was reading it and studying it this week is this is the end of Acts. This is the climax of the book of Acts. And Acts is actually volume two of a two-volume set that Luke wrote, the first being Luke's gospel. And so Luke's written all of this work and he's wondering, how's he going to bring it all to a close? And he says, you know what? I'm going to give a detailed description of this shipwreck. And it's not because this was the only shipwreck they experienced. Paul had been shipwrecked three times, he told us. But there's something here that Luke wants to hold before us as he's talking about the church, being on mission, taking the gospel to the world. And then he ends by telling the story of this shipwreck, of these sufferings. Now, I think what Luke is doing is he's trying to give us an accurate picture of what life in this world is like. I think what Luke is doing is he's trying to keep us away from kind of the fantasy Christianity that once you follow Jesus and if you do everything right, everything's going to be easy. Instead, he shows us Paul, battered by the waves, unable to eat for two weeks. He holds before us this picture of how hard the Christian life really is. And so the question I want to ask is, how do we endure? How do we survive in the shipwreck? Because we all have them coming. Maybe some of you are in it right now. What I want to hold before you in the text is three things. Number one, we have to embrace, embrace the paradox. Number two, you have to remember your identity. And number three, you have to know how to feast in the storm. You have to be able to embrace the paradox. You have to remember your identity. You have to know how to feast in a storm. What do I mean when I say embrace the paradox? Well, in verse 22, Paul tells his shipmates that an angel, this is right in the middle of the storm. They hadn't seen the sun or stars for days, so they're in the thick of it. And Paul tells his shipmates that an angel of the Lord appeared to him with an encouraging message. He says, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, this is good news if you're on the ship, right? An angel of God shows up and says, no one's going to die no matter how bad it looks. You're like, this is awesome. But then just a few verses later, some of the sailors, they try to they act like they're lowering an anchor, but really they're lowering the lifeboat. And the sailors try to sneak off the boat in the middle of the night. And Paul tells the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, does anyone see the problem there? I mean, at first Paul's saying, hey, we're all going to live. Angel of the Lord's promised it. And here he's saying, hey, if the sailors leave, we're all going to die. The question is, well, which is it, Paul? Is everyone going to live? Is God in control? Because if God's in control, his word's going to be seen through. But now you're saying if these guys leave, which, which is it? And what makes this challenging for our minds is we are an either or people. We tend to think in categories of either or. And so when it comes to things like sovereignty and suffering and human responsibility, we think that if God is sovereign and his purposes always prevail, then our choices don't really matter because our destiny is fixed. Like if God is sovereign from beginning to end, 
He rules over all and his plans are always accomplished. Then it doesn't matter what we do. Why? Because he's in control. He's sovereign. But on the other hand, if our choices really do matter, we think, then the future is contingent upon them, which means history is open-ended, which means we have the ability to screw up, disrupt, or change God's plan. So on the one hand, if God's sovereign, it doesn't matter what we do. Paul and the crew could go windsurfing for all God cares because they're going to survive. But then on the other hand, if what we do matters, if, if what we do actually changes things, then there's no way that God could be in control and that his plan could prevail. We think it's one or the other. But the Bible shows us, this text shows us, and the Bible shows us this consistently, is that number one, God is in complete control and his purposes always prevail. But number two, we are responsible for what we do and our actions really do matter. That's a paradox. By, by nature, paradoxes are hard for us to wrap our minds around. And it's, I need to be clear here, it's not 50% God's in control and 50% our actions matter. Or, you know, for the super spiritual, 99% uh, God's in control and 1% our actions matter. No, it's 100% God is in control and it's 100% that our actions matter. paradoxes, they're challenging. But what I want you to see, this isn't just some abstract theological or philosophical point I'm trying to make. Because if you're able to embrace this paradox, if you're able to hold both of those truths together, even though in our minds we don't know how to bring them together, it will help you tremendously in navigating the suffering and chaos of life. First, it'll... <laughs> It'll enable you to reject simplistic answers to suffering, simplistic answers to the question of suffering. You know, like why, let me ask you a question. Why is Paul in this storm in the first place? Why is he here? Well, the easy answer is it was God's will. You know, everything happens for a reason. This was God's will. And in a sense, you're absolutely right. It was God's will for Paul to go to Rome it was God's will for Paul to be on this ship. And Paul would even agree with that because later he writes to the Ephesians and he tells them that God works everything according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. So yeah, it's true. Paul's on the ship because it's God's will. But that's not the whole truth. Because before they went out to sea, Paul warned them. He said, man, I can see that our voyage is gonna be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. So Paul said, we shouldn't be going out. Once they go out, you know, Paul, when they're in the middle of the storm, he doesn't say, well, it's God's will. Like, obviously, this was God's design for us. No, Paul gets to say the most delightful four words that we ever get to utter. I told you so. <laughs> he says, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. So here we see that part of the reason Paul's suffering is because they didn't take his advice. And what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us, sure, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is people are dumb. They make dumb decisions. Everything happens for a reason. 
Sometimes we suffer because we don't listen to wisdom. Sometimes we, like Paul, suffer because other people don't listen to wisdom. And yet in the midst of all of it, God is still in complete control. And if you can hold those things together, you won't offer simplistic answers to the complexity of suffering. You won't say to people these trite sayings that aren't helpful. You'll be able to say there's a whole lot of mystery here and there's a whole lot we can't wrap our minds around. Even more than that, if you're able to to embrace the paradox, it will it will enable you to face suffering with adversity in adversity with real poise and with confidence. I mean, Paul shows tremendous leadership chops in this text. I mean, it's like a a clinic on leadership because he's walking around, he's encouraging people, he's lifting people up, he's meeting needs, he's reading the wind, he's offering wisdom, he's saying hard things. He's showing this tremendous poise because he knew and understood the paradox. He said they both matter. See, if you believe everything is in God's control, but you don't believe that our actions really matter, what happens in the face of suffering is you become passive. If you believe God's in control of everything, but our actions don't really matter, when suffering comes, you become passive. You take your hands off. You say, well, whatever's happening is God's will. And I want to submit to you, that's not always the right move. Paul doesn't see the sailors trying to escape on the boat and say, well, let go and let God. He says, get back in the boat. We don't know how to do this. We're not sailors. We don't know how to navigate this ship. We need you or we're going to die. And I think that there are a lot of Christians who use the, the truth, which is true, that everything is in God's control, to become passive, not just to suffering in their life, but oftentimes to suffering in the world that it's an easy thing to hide behind when we see suffering in the world to say, well, God's sovereign over all. He controls everything. And it's obviously his will for this suffering to take place. It's unbiblical and it's poor leadership, but we do it if all we say is God is in control. On the other hand, if you believe your actions really matter, but you don't believe God is in control, you don't go passive, you panic. You'll freak out at every bolt of lightning and every crash of thunder. And how could you not? I mean, if we really believe that God was not in control and that his purposes prevailing were contingent upon how well we obeyed, it would paralyze us. Now, hard it would be to preach a sermon if I was not absolutely confident that God's in control. What if I say something wrong? What if you hear something wrong? What if you twist something I say and you go make bad decisions? How could you live with that? When you embrace the paradox, you don't go passive, you don't panic. You show poise. You have poise because you you know that what you do matters and that your actions and your efforts count, but you won't be panicked and you won't freak out because you know that whatever does end up happening, God's will is being accomplished. And if we're gonna navigate suffering well, if we're gonna suffer well together, we have to be a people who are okay with the paradox. God is absolutely in control and his plans prevail and we are absolutely responsible and our words and deeds matter. Embrace the paradox. Number two, you have to know how to, you have to remember your identity. If you've been with us throughout the series, you know Paul, 
Paul suffered often and he suffered deeply. He was beaten with rods. He was flogged. He was put in chains. He was imprisoned. He was betrayed by countrymen. He was abandoned by his friends. Whatever suffering you're going through, Paul has probably experienced it. And he experienced it at probably a more profound level than any of us will. And after all the suffering, now he finds himself in this brutal storm on the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, and yet all of this suffering, it hasn't made Paul angry or bitter. It hasn't filled him with self-pity. I mean, how many of us, if we went through that much suffering, eventually you think you would get to the place where you'd just be either despairing, you'd be bitter, you'd be angry, or you'd just be saying, well, it was me. And Paul isn't doing any of those things. Instead, Paul's moving with strength and with confidence. His faith in God hasn't been weakened by the suffering. It's actually been strengthened, even though it just keeps coming at him. So the question is why, or maybe the better question is how? How can we use suffering to grow us and not embitter us? How can we take the hardships, the wind and the waves that rock our lives, how can we use those things to not embitter us, to not make us just angry, cold, dejected, cynical people. Well, look again at what Paul says when he tells about his visit from the angel in verse 22. He says, last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me. Do you notice the language there? He doesn't say, last night, an angel of the God that I serve. He doesn't say, last night, an angel of the God that I worship. He says, an angel of the God whose I am. Other translations probably get it better when they say, have it translated as, the God to whom I belong. This is important language. It's the language of possession. You know, if you talk about another human, per, human being and you say, you know, my Steph, that shows that there is deep intimacy and closeness in the re- relationship. It's, it's really covenantal language when you use a possessive and talking about another person. When God enters into covenant with his people, you know what he says? You will be my people and I will be your God. And so Paul, after months and months and months of persecution and suffering, when he gets up before all these non-believers on the ship and he talks about his relationship with God, he uses covenantal language. He says, I belong to him. And he loves me. And he's for my good. And he's committed to my good. So Paul, you can trust him implicitly. This is so important for us. This is so important for suffering and for navigating it. Because most of us, when we suffer, we, think, we tend to think God is either withdrawn from us or he's pouring out wrath on us. Most of us, when we experience intense suffering, we think God has either gone absent absentee father, or he's gone abusive father. He's making us pay. He's turning the screws for all the things that we've done wrong. Paul, he doesn't fall into either of those traps. 
he knows that he belongs to God. And because Paul knows that he belongs to God, that settled some things in his mind. And there are some things that if you're going to face suffering well, you got to get some things settled in your mind. Number one, you have to understand, Christian, that you were bought at a price. That's what Paul says. I've been bought at a price. And because Jesus has purchased me at a price, he didn't purchase me at a price to abandon me or to just pour out wrath on me. He poured out wrath on, God the Father poured out wrath on his son so he wouldn't pour it out on me. And if you know that you belong to God and you're about at a price, here are are two things in particular it will settle for you. The first is that God does not condemn those who are in Christ. God doesn't condemn those who are in Christ. You know, I had a period of a few years in my my walk with Jesus where I was wrestling with this question, does God get angry at us when we sin? It's a complicated question, but the reason I was wrestling with it was I thought, if God gets angry with us when we sin, then he's angry with me all the time. Can I get an amen from anyone on that? Right? If God gets angry with us when we sin, because everyone, you know, like God's just, and I totally agree. If God gets angry, then, then he's angry all the time. And how can you not feel like he's angry with you when you're suffering? And I was wrestling through that question for months. I was seeking people out. And finally, I came across Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And in Romans 8, 1, Paul settled the discussion for me when he writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ Jesus and you are suffering, it is not condemnation, it is not wrath, it is not judgment. God might be disciplining you and he might be pruning you, But those are things God does in love, not in anger. And so the first thing you have to get settled in your mind if you're going to weather the storms is God does not condemn us. And so we can be suffering for a lot of of different reasons, but we know for sure one reason we're not suffering, or one reason why we're not suffering is because God's mad at us or pouring out his anger on us. The second thing that had been settled in Paul's mind is that God finishes what he starts. And that because God bought us at a price, he's gonna see the work through to completion. Paul actually says as much in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to be able to weather suffering, you got to have this settled in your mind as well, that when you're suffering, God, he finishes what he starts. And the reason this is so important is because then you'll know that he hasn't abandoned you. If God finishes things, that means me suffering, it's not God withdrawing from me. He's doing something in my life for sure. But our God's a God who finishes what he starts. Paul He had both of these truths settled because he knew he lived in covenant with God. And I will tell you, if you know in your bones that God will never condemn you, and you know in your bones that God finishes what he starts, 
then you will be able to use the suffering in your life to make you great. You'll be able to use the suffering in your life to make you a person with a big heart and a deep soul. Not because you understand exactly what God's up to, but you certainly know what he's not up to. Paul, whenever he suffered, he knew God was there in it with him. So you have to remember your identity. Lastly, you have to know how to feast in the storm. In verse 33, this is 14 days into the storm, we're told that just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of, him, in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. So 14 days in the midst of the storm, Paul gets before the 275 other people on board and he says, hey, we need to eat. And in this act of supreme confidence, you know, he holds up this piece of bread, he gives thanks, and he breaks it. I mean, this is an iconic image for me of Paul. When you think of Paul, I want you to think of this image. It's like, you know, John Cusack and Say Anything where he's holding the stereo over his head. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, this is what I think about with Paul. He's on the ship, and the, it's, everything is raging around him. Uh, and in your eyes is playing in the background and he's holding up this loaf of bread and he's saying, we need to eat. Now, of course, on one level, he's saying it because he knows they're about to swim for a little while and they need to carve up because they haven't eaten anything in two weeks. The ship, the, the turmoil, the constant rocking, they're all seasick and they've all been running around just trying to keep things together. But there's something deeper going on here. Because the language Luke uses here is very specific and very particular. Luke uses the same exact language in his gospel when he tells us that on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, on the night that Jesus was in the thickest, worst, darkest storm in the history of the world, that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after his resurrection, when Jesus is on the road with some unnamed folks who are heading to Emmaus, Jesus reveals himself to them by taking bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and eating. And now here, Paul, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he begins to eat. This isn't an accident that Luke put it in here in that way. It's not an accident. Luke's telling us something. And I don't think he's telling us that Paul and all 276 people took communion together. Most of them weren't believers. I don't think that was it. I do think, though, for Paul and the other believers who were on the ship, there was a deep meaning in this meal. It was a meal of remembrance. Remembering Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. It was a meal that as they're eating it, as they see Paul break the bread, they remember Jesus Christ's body was broken for me. A meal that reminds us that Jesus has gone before us and he suffered for us. 
and because he's gone before us and because he suffered for us, we can not only eat this meal, we can eat it with confidence, knowing that no matter what happens, we're safe in him. You know, Paul, right in the middle of breaking the bread and everything, he tells the crew, not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. And this is very specific and particular language as well, because at the end of Luke's gospel, kind of right before everything we just read, Jesus He's talking with his disciples and he says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Let me read that again just a little more slowly. Jesus says, they will put some of you to death but not a hair of your head will perish. (laughs) What does this mean? I'm going to have good hair in my coffin? They're going to put you to death, but not a hair. Well, that Jesus, he goes on, he says, by standing firm, you will gain life. Not you will keep life, you will gain life. He's talking about an experience of life, a depth of life that we don't currently have. And what Jesus is telling the disciples here, and really what communion, what taking part in the meal means for us is that, yes, suffering, pain, and death are real. Yes, suffering, death, and pain, they're coming for all of us, but they're not final. And ultimately, when we feast on the bread, what we're celebrating put it real simply, is that everything's going to be okay. We might die, but everything's going to be okay. We might suffer immensely, but everything's going to be okay because God, he provides for us and he's given us the ultimate provision in his son. You know, this past week, I watched Martin Scorsese's movie, Silence. Has anyone seen that movie? A couple people? Better than the nine. Not one person. Uh, I get it. It's a hard movie. It's about these Jesuit missionaries who went to Japan in the 17th century. Um, And man, it's a powerful movie. But at one point, uh, one of the missionaries, um, he's arrested and thrown in with some other Japanese Christians who've been arrested by the Inquisitor. And the missionary who's been arrested, they call him Padre. He's a priest. And he just witnessed three other Japanese Christians be tortured and executed. They were crucified on a beach so that when the tide rolled in, it barely went over their heads and so they would drown. And it's a, it is a very hard scene to watch. And so he realizes that the suffering that's coming for him and for all of them is very, very real. And so there's this scene where he sits down with these Japanese Christians and, you know, they, they, have, they exchange some small talk, but all the Japanese Christians are really calm. I mean, these are poor peasants, but they're all calm and they're kind of smiling. And the priest, he eventually loses it on him and he screams at them, why are you so calm? Do you not know we are all going to die? It's really intense. And this Japanese woman, 
She says, but Padre, when we die, don't we go to paradise? And he said, well, yeah. And she said, in paradise, no one's hungry. And you're never sick. There's no more taxes. And no hard work. Isn't that true, Padre? And the, his, his countenance, his expression, his posture, everything changes. And he said, yeah, it's true. No more taxes, no more hard work, no more sickness, no more death, and we are united to God. And I watched that scene and I thought, how often am I like that priest? How often are we like that priest running around? Do you not understand? Life really stinks, it's really hard. The suffering's really real, the pain's really real. Do you not understand, does no one care? Yeah, God cares. That's why he gave us his son who suffered more than we will ever suffer. And today, God gives us our daily bread. Today, he provides for us. But in the future, he does have a feast prepared for us. Isaiah 25, verses six to eight, the prophet gives us a picture of the day when Jesus will make all things new. He tells us that on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And because the Lord has spoken, because he's met our initial need in Christ and our ultimate need in Christ, and because he's coming back, what that means is that we can feast in the midst of the storms. And we need to feast in the midst of the storms. Communion, it's a meal of confidence in the midst of the chaos of life. Confidence in our God who ordained that his son's body be broken and blood be shed so that we could be brought near to him. It's a meal of confidence too that we know he's coming again and we're gonna sit down and share another meal with the, the choicest of meats and the finest of wines. And so when we come to the table this morning, we're not coming saying everything's fine. We're not coming, we don't have to be happy clappy. We're coming saying the storm might be raging, but we can still eat because our God provides and he will provide for us ultimately and finally. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to come and to eat. I know sometimes when I'm discouraged, when I'm depressed, when I'm suffering, I don't feel like taking communion. I don't feel like feasting. And I wanna say, if you are in Christ, it is in those moments you need to take it most of all. It's most important. And you might say, well, I have sin in my life. Welcome to the club. We all have sin in our life. That's why we come and take part in it. You might say, well, my heart's cold towards God. Yeah, but his heart is not cold towards you. And so if you're in Christ, come and feast. And if you're not in Christ, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ to whom it points. Jesus Christ who was thrown into the ocean to bring you to God. Let me pray.